Hello and welcome to another episode of Damn Interesting Week. We are so glad you've decided to join us. My name is Jennifer Lee Noonan. I'm Angela Epley. I'm Weisper Chen. I'm Bradley Calhoun. And this was a damn interesting week. So let's get started with our first link. First link. Okay, F1 season is back in action. I say this only because I have become a recent fan, in mm. part thanks to my husband, who has been a super fan for a very long time. So it is with that context of the most elite of the elite racers and the fastest of the cars that I approached this Smithsonian Magazine article called when deadly steamboat races enthralled America. <laughs> okay, I know it sounds really funny. Ha ha, a steamboat, but holy smokes, this was a thing, y'all. Yeah, I mean, I'm picturing Steamboat Willie, the little pre Mickey Mouse cartoon going like, yeah, kick him down. <laughs> I mean, you are not that far nice. off. Okay, so let's, let's back up a little bit. Why the steamboat? Well, during the 19th century, hundreds of steamboats were carrying passengers across America's waterways faster and more luxuriously than ever before. Historian James Thomas Flexner wrote in 1944, the steamboat was the first American invention of world-shaking importance. It was one of those crucial inventions that changed the whole cultural climate of the human race. And it's defined pretty broadly. So any vessel that is powered by a steam engine gets to be called a steamboat. But we most often use it to describe that paddle wheel propelled craft. Mm -hmm. And these were roaming the rivers of the United States, mostly in the Mississippi in the 19th century. An early prototype set sail in 1787, but it was only in 1807 that the first commercially successful steamboat made its debut. What made the steamboat in particular revolutionary was its ability to travel on rivers, regardless of which way the water was flowing. Mm. They would basically just load flatboats up in Tennessee or Kentucky, float them down the Mississippi, and then dismantle them, break them up for scrap once they reach their destination. Not terribly efficient, right? Mm. <laughs> so it was really useful to have the steamboat invention, but they were super dangerous, y'all. Right. <laughs> they, they were incredibly, <laughs> yeah. The boilers they used to make the steam, they were prone to exploding, <laughs> igniting fires. Not only were, you know, the boats themselves built mostly out of wood, but their cargo alone, it was often things like cotton bales. Mm. Oh, maybe we're doing barrels of turpentine and gunpowder <laughs> on this round, you know? And the waterways themselves are just full of hazards. They had snags, which are large tree limbs and uprooted trees that floated on top of the water or were lurking just out of sight below the surface. But now we've got a whole bunch of these steamboats that are starting to create traffic on these rivers. And so we also run the risk of collision. Now we've got, you know, people driving these things. And yeah. And they were drunk all the time, too. Like, come on. <laughs> Between 1816 and 1848, the boiler explosions alone killed more than 1,800 passengers wow. and crew. There was a sinking of the steamboat Sultana in 1865. That one claimed as many as 1,800 lives, still the worst maritime disaster in U.S. history. Huh. Even Charles Dickens, when he was on a holiday here in the U.S. in 1842, he toured the United States and wrote, 
Western steamboats usually blow up one or two a week in the season. Wow. <laughs> the blowing up boat season, you know. <laughs> you know, it's just how they do in America, right? <laughs> so we've already got these hazards that are inherent in the craft themselves, the environment. Well, we're going to start racing them. And yeah, it quickly became a nationwide sensation. In some cases, the races were planned and advertised in advance. And so we'd get spectators lining the riverbanks. Sometimes it would be thrill-seeking passengers urging on the captains. <laughs> and yes, of course, we had gamblers betting on the outcome. Of because course. there's so much money to be made <laughs> when it comes to stuff like this. There was one race in 1870. Total wagers at that time amounted to more than a million dollars, which is around, you know, cool 23 million today. Yeah. Wow. wow. So not only did you get bragging rights if you won one of these races, the winning boat was typically awarded a large pair of deer antlers, what? often painted gold. The whole point was so you could mount it in a prominent place okay. for all to admire, right? Even Mark Twain was a big fan of these. Quote, I think that much the most enjoyable of all races is a steamboat race. And here, here he goes off. Okay. Two red hot steamboats raging along neck and neck, straining every nerve, quaking and shaking and groaning from stem to stern, spouting white steam from the pipes, raining down sparks, parting the river into long breaks of hissing foam. This is a sport that makes a body's very liver curl with enjoyment. Boy, wow. he, he made that really sexual, huh? I know! <laughs> the appeal is very visceral, right? And as a matter of fact, Twain deemed horse races, quote, pretty tame and colorless in comparison. Yeah, you never see a horse explode, do you? Come on. Like, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Rivulets of foam? I think not. <laughs> and just as Flexner, the historian, saw the steamboat as a distinctly American innovation, well, the 19th century humorist Charles Godfrey Leland said much the same about steamboat racing, quote, from the days of the Romans and Norsemen down to the present time, there was never any form of amusement discovered so daring, so dangerous, and so exciting. Nobody but Americans could have ever invented or indulged in it. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, people started realizing that these were super reckless events. The New York Tribune denounced one particular race as wholesale murder, which... <laughs> <laughs> Not wrong. So finally, these all came to a halt with the Steamboat Act of 1852, which imposed stricter safety and inspection requirements, called for the licensing of river pilots and engineers. In other words, regulation saved the day. Mm. <laughs> or ruined the sport. Right. One or two. <laughs> Can't have fun anymore. <laughs> uh -huh. Super fair. All right. Next link. Next, next link. link. This article comes to us from The Walrus, and it's titled AI and Politics. How will we know what and who is real? Oh, dear. We won't. That's the yeah. conclusion I've come to. Yeah. Can we Next just article. scrap it all? I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. And bathwater? Basically, yeah, that kind of is the, the case, in my opinion. But it's interesting to explore this kind of transitional sure. period we're in regardless. So Thomas Jefferson wrote in the winter of 1789, wherever the people are well informed, they can be trusted with their own government. And be careful of AI. Yes. <laughs> in other words, in a democracy, being informed grants people agency and having agency gives us a voice. If we're lucky, AI-generated or AI-manipulated audio and video will cause only brief moments of isolated confusion in our political sphere. If we're not, there's a risk it could upend politics and society permanently. 
In 2018, actor and director Jordan Peele allowed his voice to be digitally altered and then grafted onto a manipulated video of Barack Obama so that it looked like the former U.S. president was actually speaking Peele's script. Oh, dear. Peele's was created as a warning against the potential for sophisticated misinformation campaigns in the future, including the 2020 U.S. election. But that election passed without any significant AI-induced confusion. Instead, simple deceptions like selective editing or outright lies have worked just fine, NPR concluded that year in an attempt to explain the lack of deepfakes. But at the time, there were technical and cost limitations. One expert told the broadcaster, it's not like you can just download one app and create a deepfake format and make an individual say this. Perhaps we'll get to the point over the next few years, and we're there now. Mm-hmm. Yep. In February, an Instagram account posted a video purportedly of President Joe Biden making offensive remarks about transgender women. The audio had been generated using an AI program that mimics real voices. It was flagged on social media as an altered video, but it gained traction and was reposted by some right-wing American media outlets. Even Biden's supporters have taken to doctoring his voice. Pod Save America co-host Tommy Vietor, a White House staffer during the Obama administration, said, I ran into a very important friend over the weekend in a recent episode before playing a clip of what sounded like Biden. He did quickly admit he'd paid $5 at 11labs.com to make the clip. Still, the reaction to each is similar. People get confused. Elizabeth Dubois, University Research Chair in Politics, Communication, and Technology, and Associate Professor at the University of Ottawa, says, One of the key things is digital literacy from a public perspective. As these innovations become more embedded in campaigns, people will generally become literate about what's happening and how things are showing up on their screen. But in these early stages <laughs> where this experimentation is happening, that's when we see the most chance for people to just not really understand what's going on. That is optimistic to the point of unrealistic. Agreed. <laughs> yeah, yes. agreed. It was like the internet was supposed to make us all smarter. smarter. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> it did no such thing. But the media under manipulation is also important, says Regina Rini, Canada Research Chair in Social Reasoning at York University. Everyone knows it's possible to fake traditional photos, we've known it's possible to tinker with videos, but the degree of default skepticism has been a lot lower for audio and video recordings. It's very possible that the gradual introduction of AI-manipulated video and audio in everyday discourse will acclimatize the general public to it in the same way we become accustomed to text-based robots. But even a slow drip could erode the foundation of our shared reality. Rini says, the thing that scares me is that we don't fall for them, or most of us don't fall for them, but they just continuously pop up one by one over time, and we're constantly fighting over whether or not we believe in the latest instance of media. That cumulative effect over time of lots of little instances of that, and some big ones too, eventually build up to the point where we stop trusting media in general. And mm -hmm. that can also apply to just basically anything you see. You know, can you trust that this video that your friend sent you is real? I mean, probably your friends, but anything beyond your immediate social sphere, it's really hard to say what is a manipulation and what isn't. Mm -hmm. Even when social media users aren't convinced videos are deepfakes or otherwise doctored, the levels of scrutiny currently devoted to just the most benign clips, particularly on TikTok, suggest an insatiable appetite for debate over the veracity of video and audio. In other words, the internet has been primed for exactly the kind of fight Rini warns against, an endless war of meta-skepticism. Mm. Well, and that's not, you know, as the article says, this isn't new. We've been using classic dis and misinformation tactics to pollute and salt the earth of a lot of these social media spaces. But this feels sort of like the final nail in the coffin of the idea of authenticity mm. existing on the internet. Yeah, for sure. I hope we go back to tribes. Like, you can only trust <laughs> yeah. the people you can see. We go back to, like, our little 150-person neighborhoods, and that's it. 
Like, <laughs> we're just completely regressed and there's nothing we can do about it. That'd be fun. Honestly, I do think that will happen, especially with mm. the way technology is going, because AI allows individuals to build technology that's an outcropping of your communal needs and culture and decentralization and all that stuff. Blah, blah, I blah. like how you guys are looking forward to this as if it's not already here. <laughs> well, I'll tell you, I don't know anyone in my neighborhood, so it's not here yet. Oh, fair enough. Fair yeah. enough. Next link. Next, Next link. link. All right, this is from Salon. Celiac disease numbers keep going up, yet due to a lack of funding, researchers still aren't sure why. So, yeah, I think we're all keenly aware of the rise of gluten-free products and Mm. gluten intolerance, right? And I think some may think it's just another fad, but celiac disease is real, and the rate of the disease keeps going up every year. First, let's talk about what celiac is and isn't. It's an autoimmune reaction to gluten that causes inflammation and atrophy in the intestines, which means it's not a gastrointestinal disease. Mm -hmm. And gluten, if you don't already know, is a protein found in wheat, rye, barley, and it's what makes it so good. Yeah, it's Mm, what makes it stretchy. Yeah. Mm -hmm. According to Dr. Peter Green, director of the Celiac Disease Center at Columbia University, quote, there's a period of time in which an individual tolerates gluten and then for some reason... They develop this immune reaction, which causes development of antibodies, which causes atrophy. Notably, doctors say many people with celiac aren't diagnosed properly, partly because the symptoms can vary. Symptoms include bloating, chronic diarrhea, constipation, gas, lactose intolerance, nausea, vomiting, and pain in the abdomen. Or a flare-up can show up as an itchy rash on a person's skin. So it ranges, right, which makes it hard to diagnose. And even with all the misdiagnoses, diagnoses, <laughs> celiac disease has increased fivefold over the past oh, 50 years, mm-hmm. with the majority of that occurring in the 90s, with higher incidence rates in females and children. Mm-hmm. And as we know, the Internet is filled with untested remedies and pseudoscience around the effects of gluten. One of the biggest unfounded rumors is, of course, GMOs. But, and I had to look this one up because when I read the statement, I said, well, that can't be true. And so I had to look through multiple sources to make sure that this statement was valid. There is no genetically modified wheat in the U.S. Hmm. Yeah. Other foods? Yes. Yeah, for sure. wheat? No. Green also emphasized that celiac is rising in countries like Australia and Canada, too. Quote, there's actually less gluten ingested by the public now than 100 years ago. Celiac has increased, and we don't know why, but autoimmune diseases and allergies have also increased, and we don't know why. Well, and there's tons of other changes to the food supply. There's a bunch of pesticides that we never used to eat. Absolutely. You know, there's a lot of things you can ingest that generally increase autoimmune disease. And the fact that that includes celiac is Mm -hmm. fine, but there's also rheumatoid arthritis, there's lupus, Mm -hmm. there's type 1 Mm -hmm. diabetes. All of those Mm -hmm. have been skyrocketing together at the same time. Right. And part of that is awareness. We're all becoming more aware and maybe this thing that hurts on me isn't just old age or whatever. And we get that taken care of. The main problem, though, is despite the increase in celiac, there's currently a lack of funding. So Mm. there are very few people actually studying the mechanism behind a disease. So be careful what you read out there. Oh, yeah, 100 Mm percent. I mean, my entire family has been gluten free for about 15 years. It started with one kid. And then because we had to get it all out of the house, the rest of us were like, well, okay, for a little bit. And then we all felt amazingly better. And it was like, wow, okay. (laughs) And we all like we've just stuck with it because especially after you've been off it for a while, if you have these Mm -hmm. issues, 
And then you have a little bit and your body's like, no, I thought we were done with that. Stop it. (laughs) It's I mean, the the symptoms were so clearly correlated for us. Yeah. And the truth is, none of us have ever been tested for celiac, but we're not going to because we don't care. Like, it doesn't matter to me if I'm gluten sensitive or celiac. I'm not going to eat it because I know how I feel what I do. Mm -hmm. So to me, I don't need to clog up the labs with my data. (laughs) I'm the other way. I'm part Italian. So without gluten, I just fall apart. Right, right, right. (laughs) Genetically. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, next link. Next link. All right. This next one is from Crime Reads, and it's called The Bogus Priest and the Murdered President. And it is mostly about the bogus priest, who was a con man (laughs) named, among other things, Gaston Darahan. But the the story does weirdly intersect with the assassination of President Garfield in 1881. So as best as we can tell, Darahan's real name was Adrian Gorder, born in Holland in 1850. He was well-educated, could speak five languages, and his solid grasp of the Bible and Catholic rituals in particular allowed him to basically run the same scam over and over in every city he visited. What he would do is he would show up in town claiming to be a foreign priest and ingratiate himself with whatever church was available. He would preach sermons, hear confessions, and just generally help out in any way he could. After a few weeks, he would ask the church for a loan to help him return to his home monastery. If they gave it to him, great, he'd take the money and disappear. If they didn't, He'd steal it from the communion funds or swipe gold (gasps) relics or whatever else the church had that was valuable. And he did this more times than anybody can count. In New York, he claimed to be the Reverend Norbert Sweeney. In Omaha, he was Father Stanislaus. (laughs) In Texas, he became Father Augustus Hempstead. And in Montreal, he was Reverend Deacon. He also dabbled in forgery, which was ultimately what got him caught in Missouri in 1879 after he tried to forge the signature of one of the priests that he was befriending. He was sentenced to five years in prison, but escaped after just one year and fled to Canada. Unfortunately for Darahan, he had now become pretty well-known in the press. And because of this newfound (laughs) notoriety, he was pretty quickly identified and arrested running another scam in Canada. And so the state of Missouri said, hang on, you can't put him in prison in Canada until he comes back and finishes being in prison here. So they sent their extradition papers to the White House for the president's signature. Meanwhile, however, President Garfield had just been shot in a Washington railroad station by Charles Guiteau, who, if you don't know the story, was fully delusional and believed that if he killed the president, the vice president would be more likely to appoint him as a U.S. consul in Paris. Did he? Uh, No. (laughs) (laughs) And while Garfield had technically survived the initial shooting, there was still a bullet in his abdomen. And he had been bedridden for weeks while various doctors came in and took their turn at trying to get it out. This being the 1880s, they were using unsterilized tools and even their bare unwashed hands to dig around in his guts. So the wound had become infected. And while they were all waiting around for him to either get better or die, the government was kind of at a standstill. And they started to worry about the optics of the situation. So one of his advisors said, look, he needs to sign something, anything to prove he's still a functioning leader. So they grabbed one random order from the pile that had been backing up on his desk, which just so happened to be Darahan's extradition request. Garfield was so weak, he could barely hold a pen. And this one paper ended up being the only thing he signed in that several month (gasps) period before he finally died from his injuries. Dang. 
Ironically, his signature didn't matter in the end because (laughs) Darahan was, again, very smart. He knew the law and he filed his own brief with the Canadian judge showing that forgery specifically was not considered an extraditable offense in Canada. So they let him go. And (laughs) all the newspapers in America had a field day condemning Canada as a safe haven for white collar criminals. Because they wouldn't have even necessarily known about this extradition request, except for the fact that the White House was like, look, he signed this thing because he's still the president and he's still alive. (laughs) But con men are nothing, if not arrogant. So just a few months later, Darahan snuck back into the U.S. voluntarily to run more scams and was immediately caught impersonating priest in Chicago. So he finished out his prison sentence in Missouri. And then we think he went back to Europe, although apparently he still hadn't learned his lesson as he was convicted at least one more time after that in (laughs) Germany on fraud and forgery charges. And that's kind of it. Like part of the thing is you look at this guy and you're like, he got caught so many times. But apparently, percentage wise, he was almost never getting caught. He seemed to have been running these scams about every couple of weeks forever. And Mm -hmm. they only caught him that one other time in Germany because he was constantly using different names and moving around. Mm -hmm. And we don't even know when he died or anything else about his life. And they kind of make it sound like he's still alive, which he clearly isn't. But (laughs) (laughs) it is a little like Kaiser Sose of him where he just sort of Mm -hmm. disappears into the mist in Europe and you never see him again. But he clearly was running this campaign all the time. Wow. Wow, What you could get away with before the Internet. Oh, yeah. Right. Well, now it would just be like, oh, he's a fake. He's not a real guy. (laughs) That's AI. (laughs) (laughs) Next link. Next link. All right, let's pour one out for a scientist that we owe a great deal to from Atlas Obscura, ranking the pain of stinging insects from spicy to shockingly electric. (laughs) Yes, one passionate entomologist who poetically described and classified more than 70 species painful stings passed away this year, and we better remember his name, entomologist Justin Schmidt. Here is just a typical entry for the tropical wasp species, Polybia similimia. Here's how he described the sting of that insect. A ritual gone wrong. Satanic. (laughs) The gas lamp in the old church explodes in your face when you light it. That's not a real typical entry, right? That's subjective as hell. It's poetic. But this description is one of 78 entries of ant, bee, and wasp stings in his pain scale for stinging insects. He died in February of 2023, was a biologist at the Southwestern Biological Institute and researcher in the entomology department at the University of Arizona. This man willingly offered his arm to different stinging insects of the order Hymenoptera to create the index featured in his 2016 book, The Sting of the Wild. (laughs) And yeah, the index ranks stinging pain on a scale of one to four and recounts his face off with each insect with a poetic and often humorous description. By the way, that scale of number one, that starts with a red fire ant. So if you've ever mm. had a red fire ant bite, and as Texans, I sadly, I have. Yes. <laughs> that's where we start mm. the index. Okay, so real talk. Now, there's a great infographic in this. I'm just going to pick one at random. The unstable paper wasp, like a dinner <laughs> no, guest. <laughs> this is so great. Like even the name unstable. unstable. <laughs> Quote, 
Like a dinner guest who stays much too long, the pain drones on. A hot Dutch oven lands on your hand and you can't get it off. (laughs) (laughs) He seems to have a lot of familiarity with other ways of getting hurt, too. Like (laughs) He's drawing these comparisons, but I'm like, have you had a gas lamp and a church blow up in your face? I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) So knowing the context of how subjective that is, That's kind of why he went into this, because pain comes in two flavors, according to him, imagined and realized. And with stings, our imagination is vivid and strong, even if the sting pain is not realized. Hmm. For example, South African giant stink ants, which live in volcano-shaped colonies, they grew up to two-thirds of an inch long. They were reputed to have very painful stings, but when he was picking up a, oh, you know, couple hundred ants, he thought the stings were unimpressive and he only scored them a 1.5 in his index. But the giant stink ants smell, true to their name, was worse than the sting. So it could Mm. make you sick from just the fumes. So he did what he could to like rank and identify the different parts. And what made the index unique was just the retelling of the stings, the poetic descriptions. He admitted he's never really was an A student in English. And when he sat down to write a sting description, he would just clear his head and purposefully think of memories that reminded him of the sting. So for example, he associated the pain of a messy divorce with the sting of an artistic one. A mother's scorn. (laughs) Listen, that's real pain, right? And he started off by describing a few of the stings in this colloquial manner, but he realized it was actually an effective way to inform people about how much each sting hurt. Because the numerical scale is still valuable to entomologists, but most people don't identify with numbers, right? If you've ever gone to the doctor, how bad your pain, one to sure. ten, like, how useful is that for both of us? Because our understanding of that scale is going to be different. How are we going to agree? And so in his words, the descriptions are much more graphic. I think they're just a much better way of communicating and conveying the essence of what the numbers are really trying to tell you. Yeah, it's nice. I mean, some people with their pain kink just go and pay for that. But he decided to use that for science research. That's right. Next link. Next link. This article comes to us from UPI.com and it's titled Gut Microbiome Makes Up Half of Cells in Human Body and Changes Mm. Constantly. You're not you. (laughs) (laughs) Half of the cells in your body aren't human, and a new study suggests that many critical to your health oscillate by the hour, day, and even the season. The human body contains about 40 trillion bacteria, viruses, and fungi, creating a microbiome that roughly matches the number of human cells one to one. And that's just wild to me, which is why I picked it, because I thought it was like, you know, sure, 10, 20 percent, something like that. There's a lot Mm -hmm. in the gut, but half, that's a lot. Yeah. Dr. Amir Zaranpar and his colleagues reviewed data on about 20,000 stool samples collected as part of a global microbiome research effort called the American Gut Project. The investigators found that nearly 60% of related bacterial groups fluctuate with a distinct 24-hour cycle. Zarenpar said, We do not have a clear cause on what contributes to these daily fluctuations, but we hypothesize that diet and sleep are likely the main contributors to this. Seasonal fluctuations were even more pronounced, with certain types of bacteria flowing one or two distinct patterns over the course of the year. One family of bacteria, called proteobacteria, consistently dipped to low levels during the winter, then steadily rose until peaking in the summer. Hmm. Zarenpar said, We did not expect the seasons to have such a tremendous effect. Though that's been recorded in hunter-gatherer societies in Africa, it has not really been reported in industrialized countries. 
Seasonal fluctuations might be influenced by location, climate, pollen, humidity, and other environmental factors, he suggested. And these findings could offer a potential explanation for why humans are more susceptible to colds and flu during specific seasons since the microbiome is known to influence immune response. The mm. fluctuating microbiome also plays a role in how drugs are metabolized and therefore could alter the results of clinical trials unless it's taken into account. I think that in terms of performing clinical trials, it's important to remember that, especially if there's a wide-ranging, multi-year study, that perhaps there may be seasonal variations in response to a drug, he said. An interesting thing we've thought about is that patient responses to COVID vaccine differs based on what time of day they received the vaccine. Huh. Oh. This could have a lot of implications. Mm -hmm. I mean, at some point, you get to the point where it's like, yeah, every person is so individual and unique, you can't do studies. You have to just be like, well, you try this and see if it works for you. Yeah. And also take it six times at different times of the day to find out if it works, but only if you take it at 8 p.m. Yeah. Well, maybe we'll find a faster, easier way of figuring out what our gut biome is other than pooping in a box and sending it to somebody else. Right. That would be convenient. Uh, like those that toilets would be nice. that like alert mm -hmm. you if you've got some sort of problem. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I've not heard of those, but maybe I'll get one now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're like super high tech toilets that are like. As you poop into the toilet, it just tests it. And obviously, they're very expensive. You're not going to have one in every house. But yeah. as a concept of just like, let's just constantly yeah. be monitoring ourselves. It's like a Fitbit, but for your toilet. <laughs> I just got like a flashback of Inner Space, which is a movie that I don't know if it's held up or not. But the whiskey flask. Do you guys remember that part? No. Does the whiskey flask test you? No, it's just that someone gets shrunken down into, you know, like a spaceship inside a human body. The host drinks whiskey. And so the spaceship guy takes his own flask and like sticks it out to like Ugh. capture some oh, of the whiskey. Oh, gross. <laughs> well, it was a better analogy than the toilet one. Okay, you can just cut all that out. <laughs> fair, 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 fair. Fair point. <laughs> all right. Well, that is all we have time for today. We're so glad you've joined us. Some of the articles we did not have time to get to today include How Are These Trees Floating Over a Finnish Road? The Strange Death of the Twin Gynecologists? And Before the Flapper, There Was the Gibson Girl. So all that and more, plus everything we talked about today, can be found on DamnInteresting.com. If you like our podcast and want to support us, you can do so at Patreon.com slash DamnInterestingWeek. In the meantime, my name is Jennifer Lee Noonan. I'm Angela Epley. I'm Whisper Chen. I'm Bradley Calhoun. And we hope you have a damn interesting week. Bye-bye.